0: Hi, I am Joseph.
1: And I am Eleni. And
0: And we we are are the hosts hosts of Microbes in Us. Us.
1: This podcast brings together the people that work tirelessly to uncover and understand the microbial world, its secrets, its complexity, and its vibrancy.
0: And it will show us how microbes can shape, break, and make our human world.
1: From prehistoric times,
0: all the way to the modern world around us.
1: We hope you enjoy and share this podcast. Hello dear listeners, welcome to this special episode to celebrate and commemorate World Antimicrobial Awareness Week. Around the world from the 18th till the 24th of November, scientists, policymakers and the public come together to raise awareness about this global health issue and we hope that with this episode we can also contribute to this. I'm in the very happy position to have here with me, Professor Laura Piddock, who is the Scientific Director at the Global Antibiotic Research and Development Partnership, Gardie Lead of the Discovery and Exploratory Research and Scientific Affairs Programs, and member of the Guardi B Policy and Advocacy Group. She's also a Professor of microbiology at the University of Birmingham. Endorsing this year's theme, Spread Awareness, Stop Resistance, and slogan, Antimicrobials Handled with Care, I want to begin this episode with some key questions. The first one being, What is exactly antimicrobial
0: resistance, and how did it all start? So, antimicrobial resistance is a phrase that means when any microbe, it could be a bacterium or a virus or any other microbe, becomes resistant to an antimicrobial that should inhibit their growth or kill them. Nowadays, we frequently use AMR to mean antibacterial drug resistance or antibiotic resistance. It's important to remember, what do we mean by resistance? So resistance in a laboratory, we measure it in vitro in test tubes in a variety of different ways, but this will give us often a value called a minimum inhibitory concentration, MIC. But this doesn't tell us whether that drug will still work in a patient or even an animal, if it was an animal drug. So for human medicine, There's uh, what we call recommended breakpoint concentrations. And these are published by organizations such as UCAST in Europe or CLIS in the United States. And these take into account various factors, but there are values that you can then relate your MIC to. And what this means is if there's a value of an MIC that's less than the recommended breakpoint concentration, one may expect that drug to work in a patient. But if the MIC value is higher, then one might expect that that drug could fail. So they're guidelines. Oftentimes when we see articles on antimicrobial resistance, they don't take into account whether it is clinically relevant, i.e. has been compared to the breakpoint concentration, Often they're just defining increased MIC values, and those alone are not really sufficient to determine the real impact of that type of antimicrobial resistance.
1: In terms of uh, human use of antimicrobials? What is the effect of AMR? How does the public experience AMR in a day-to-day basis?
0: So there are antimicrobial drug-resistant bacteria around all of the time. And for most people, we'll be carrying drug-resistant bacteria on our skin or in our bodies. So they're part of our microbiome. The only issue is if they cause an infection and the drug resistance is to the drug That has been prescribed for the patient. So again, coming back to clinical relevance. And what we find then is that for patients who have serious infections, perhaps pneumonia or perhaps a bloodstream infection that is progressing into sepsis, that the drug resistance can be really serious. And by that, I mean that the first antibiotic may not work, the second one may not work, and may end up using what's called a drug of last resort. And sometimes these are very toxic drugs, such as colistin. So, for most people in high income countries, this means that they may well be told by uh, the healthcare professional, oh, that drug hasn't worked, we'll have to try another one. But they often don't realise it hasn't worked due to drug resistance, but that's often the case. In low- and middle-income countries, there is another factor, of course, that drug-resistant bacteria not only affect them uh, widely, same way as everywhere else, but there's much less choice and availability of drugs that can be used. So in those countries, they're much more affected by drug-resistant infections. Although it is important to note that certain populations are more affected and we know even in Europe that the greatest burden of drug resistance is in babies and very young children and they are much more impacted by infections and they're much more impacted by drug resistance. So higher morbidity, so it'll take them longer to get better and a higher rate of mortality as well.
1: And um, now that you mentioned differences between different countries, do you think the problem of AMR is the same between countries? Is it different? And what what extra differences can we see between, let's say, high-middle-income uh, and low-middle-income countries?
0: So the bacteria that are drug-resistant are the same. Uh, you know, we're, we've seen this with COVID, you know, what happens in one country happens everywhere else. And the same is true bacteria. The difference is the availability of medicines. So we're better able to treat drug resistant infections or even not notice that it was a drug resistant bacterium because the drug that's chosen um, is effective against that type of drug resistant bacterium. And that is not the case elsewhere. Many people have described antimicrobial resistance as a slow moving pandemic, and I absolutely do not agree with that. It is a pandemic that's already here. But for those of us that are fortunate enough to live in high income countries, it's silent for most of the time. But, you know, as I've just mentioned, children and babies, it's not silent for them. And for cancer patients, it's not silent for them either or for sepsis patients. So there are particular populations that are much more adversely impacted. I mean, I could you know, go on with the list patients with cystic fibrosis or complicated urinary tract infections. You know, this is not silent and it's not slow moving. This is very real for them every day.
1: Do you think that we are correctly dealing with the repertoire of antibiotics and antimicrobials that we have to date or do you think that we need to um, increase um, the stewardships around it and how careful we use them?
0: I think many healthcare professionals around the world are acutely aware of this is a very precious and highly valuable resource that is needed but it is a, a very quick reaction to when you see a seriously ill patient and again we've seen this with Covid where Everyone made the assumption in the early months that COVID would be just like influenza and it would lead to bacterial pneumonia. And so those patients were given antibiotics to prevent that progression. We now know that COVID, of course, behaves very differently to influenza, and that's not the case. But what has happened in the last 18 months is that millions of patients have received antibiotics unnecessarily. And that's in addition to pre-COVID when millions of patients received antibiotics unnecessarily. So some examples of this are upper respiratory tract infections where we know that the vast majority of those are caused by viruses, including otitis media or earache. But there's a lot of pressure from individuals when they see their healthcare professional to prescribe an antibiotic. And that is a big challenge. So how do we manage patients' expectations whilst also uh, practicing good stewardship? And some countries have done this by giving a patient a a prescription that's post-dated. So if this doesn't get better in one day, two days, or whatever, then go and get the antibiotic. In hospitals, some hospitals have guidelines that use this drug for 24 hours and then review whether it's needed for your patient. And whether it's working and if it's not compare it to the bacteriology results and see if they've really got a bacterial infection because although sepsis is frequently caused as a reaction to say a bloodstream infection in a patient there's still you know 10 20 percent of patients where sepsis is not of a bacterial origin and so an antibiotic won't work so Clinicians are often asked to monitor their patients and then of course that comes down to do they have the time to do this and if we look again at COVID so this double checking triple checking there's just not been the time to do it so patients have stayed on antibiotics for a longer period of time than they sh- should really have done so.
1: And now that we mentioned, really, AMR and coronavirus, I think that everyone can relate to is the daily reporting of cases of COVID-19. Um, for example, I just remember myself waiting for the 9 p.m. news just to hear, you know, do the cases went up, do the cases went down. And also governments showed that they used mm-hmm. this reporting to orchestrate the measures against the pandemic. Do you think that there is a similar level of reporting and data collection on antimicrobial resistant cases? And do the data that we currently have are a good representation of antimicrobial resistance to date?
0: So it's much easier to collect data for a single virus such as coronavirus. And because all countries are monitoring this very closely, they can indicate the number of cases, the number of people who go into hospital with it, and those that unfortunately die. We are not collecting the same level of data for antimicrobial resistant bacteria. And this is for several reasons. Firstly, it's not a single bacterial species that is antimicrobial resistant. It's not a single infection. Different bacteria cause different infections in different parts of the body. Sometimes the same bacteria will cause different infections in different parts. And then there's a whole array of different drugs to which bacteria can be drug resistant. So it's much more difficult to collect the data because it's a much, much bigger task. There's a huge amount of data that needs to be collected. So a few years ago, the WHO, the World Health Organization, set up the GLASS program to collect uh, resistance data. And then more recently, they've added into it collecting uh, mortality data. So that's ongoing. So far, all the figures that we've seen, such as it's estimated that 23,000 people a year die of drug-resistant infections in Europe or a similar number in the United States, for instance, those have come from academic studies. And typically, those studies have focused on one or two uh, bacterial species resistant to only a few different drugs. So those data aren't comprehensive. So most of us consider that those data are an underestimate rather than overestimate. So very conservative figures that we're still working with.
1: Now I want to focus a little bit more on the RD model for antibiotic discovery because following the boom around the 1950s, we are now experiencing a very, very slow pipeline of new
0: antibiotics being discovered.
1: So what are your thoughts on that?
0: So it's probably worth going back a few decades to just remind ourselves of what the traditional antibiotic R&D model has been. So that's been where large pharmaceutical companies had very big departments that did everything from discovering new chemical matter Uh, then doing a lot of preclinical research to show that something that worked in a test tube was safe and efficacious and could then go into human trials and then test whether it's effective against the target infection. And then they were also able, if that drug was approved for use in humans, to then manufacture it and distribute it. So all of this is a very complicated process involving if you think about it, it's like a train and it's lots and lots of different carriages on it. And in that carriage are people with very different specialist skills. But that model started to change about 20 years ago. And that model changed where companies became less and less keen to be engaged from the whole way through the pipeline. And one of the reasons for that is it was becoming incredibly difficult scientifically to find new molecules that were active against the bacteria that were increasingly common in causing infections. So the picture of the really dangerous infections had changed. So in the 80s, for instance, and 90s, people were really concerned about infections by Streptococcus pneumoniae or Staphylococcus aureus, particularly methicillin-resistant Staphylococcus aureus, MRSA. So a lot of new drugs were produced, And they were very effective against infections by those species. High-tech medicine then developed and we found that patients who would otherwise have died maybe of a bloodstream infection in cancer or they'd have died of the cancer early on, complicated surgeries, particularly transplants, these patients were starting to suffer with infections by totally different bacterial species. For instance, E. coli or Pseudomonas or acinetobacter baumannii. Now, Those infections still occurred in the 1980s, but they became much more common. As medicine advanced, you have much more vulnerable patients, therefore they picked up these infections. So we needed different types of medicines. But the economic model was starting to fail in that antibiotics have always been priced very cheaply. Whereas, for instance, cancer drugs have always been very expensive. So what it meant is that companies could make more money making other types of drugs than antibiotics. So companies started exiting the field. We also saw in the 90s and 2000s that, that companies were merging. So originally where there would have been uh, Beecham's, Glaxo, Smith and Nephew and whatever, that's all become GlaxoSmithKline today. Others have, have kept the name of the company that acquired them, and you're not aware of all the different companies that actually made them. So the net result is there's very few companies today still active. Um, but they're not usually discovering antibiotics themselves. Uh, very few of them do that, of the few that remain. What tends to happen now is that new antibiotics are discovered either in academia or research institutes, in a small company and that again the model up until relatively recently would be that a big company would acquire or license that small company or the license the potential product and then they would do the clinical development that in itself has been changing and that small companies have sometimes been doing the clinical development themselves and that's now more common but money is now an issue because They're reliant on money from all sorts of different sources, such as Barda or venture capital. And so they can struggle for money to do the very expensive clinical development uh, parts of the programme. But then at the end it's, well, where are they going to sell their drugs? Is there a market for those drugs where they've actually got approval? Can they manufacture them in the parts of the world where they may actually be more needed and can they distribute them? So now there's different questions, which is why God P feels very strongly that we need lots of different types of actors involved in this now, not just big farmer or small farmer that are profit-making enterprises, but also be involved, uh, for instance, clinical trial networks, which would involve hospitals, but also then involve not-for-profit organizations, such as P that can work alongside everybody and facilitate drugs to be developed that may otherwise not be developed.
1: And just a slight note here, that there is a recent paper in Clinical Infectious Diseases from Professor Pitock and colleagues that shows how B is working i.e. using a non-profit model for antibiotic R&D and how this can contribute to the AMR solution. So to end this episode, I want to go back to why we came here and uh, why we're recording this, which is World Ant- Antibiotic Awareness Week or Antimicrobial Awareness Week. That uh, the, the term has now changed to involve both um, drugs that target bacteria, but also viruses, fungi, parasites, and all of those. Um, so why do we need a special week like this? And do you, where do you think the public awareness of antimicrobial resistance stands to date?
0: So it depends what we mean by public. So do we mean the scientific uh, community? Because a lot of the activities in previous years has very much been focused on the scientific or healthcare community, particularly on stewardship, for instance. There are activities, depending on the country, that are aimed at the non scientific general public. And again, some countries have been very successful at this and others uh, less so. And I think it comes back to the original point you made that without having an understanding as to whether this is a common uh, event or very rare and whether it's going to affect that individual, people are not that engaged. So when I've done public awareness activities, so I've spoken on television or um, at science fairs or book festivals or music festivals, um, you often find that people think, well, it's not going to happen to me. And I always start with say, well, how many of you have had an antibiotic in the last five years? And just about everybody in your audience will put their hand up. And then I say, well, what would have happened to you if you hadn't have had that antibiotic? And then they suddenly realize the value of drugs. So I think what we need to do with public awareness is start very simply with what is the value of antibiotics and therefore what will be the impact without an effective antibiotic. And that's where we start. The second thing I feel very strongly about is we adults are very difficult to get opinions changed. We somehow have an attitude that Science is a belief system like religion, when of course we know as scientists that it's based on fact, but that those facts change over time as we get more evidence. So, what we have to do, I believe, is involve children, educate children, very basic science, very basic understanding of infection and antibiotics, because they're the adults of the future. They're the antibiotic users of the future, as well as uh, while they're children. But they also go home and educate their families. And there's a wonderful resource called eBug, and it's translated into many, many different languages. And I encourage everyone to get their children to use it or get their local schools to use it. And that will make a massive difference.
1: And something also that ties in with what you said is that uh, we do use an- antibiotics, Biotics or antimicrobials to treat infections, but they are also very key in other uh, important medical practices that do not evolve around infection. For example, chemotherapy, if you go for surgery, hip replacements. um, So all of these things would otherwise not be possible or very difficult to be successful if we didn't have access and we didn't have effective uh, anti- antimicrobials. So you are quite
0: right. So most people would get an antibiotic before surgery to prevent an infection. And the antibiotic would depend on the type of surgery they're having. So yes, a lot of people have had that. Um, cancer patients often receive a lot of antibiotics because they're so vulnerable to infection, um, You know, such as neutropenic fever, which is not uncommon when they're on chemotherapy. And I think many of them are unaware of the value um, in these different contexts.
1: Yeah, and we, we've we only considered humans in this talk in general, but we need to also keep in mind that antimicrobials are also used in other practices such as agriculture, aquaculture, animals, plants, mm-hmm. environments, and they are present also there. So. The, the, the problem is multidimensional and requires a multidisciplinary approach by everyone. It does.
0: Um, and a lot of my research at one point was on Salmonella and Campylobacter, which are foodborne pathogens from animals to humans in the main, particularly with Campylobacter. And we could see that drug-resistant strains were transferring into people. And this is where contacts became everything because... It only mattered if those individuals with a Campylobacter infection, for instance, or if they got gastroenteritis due to salmonella, needed an antibiotic, because many of those infections are self-limiting. But, you know, a substantial number of people, the infection doesn't go away and they need an antibiotic. And what we and others showed is that the drug-resistant strain coming through the food chain didn't respond to the antibiotic that was first choice. So this is where, you know, use in animals can impact on human health. There's other, lots of other examples. But the issue with using antibiotics in animals is twofold. First of all, in some countries, they still use antibiotics to promote the growth of the animals. And that's because the conditions those animals, or fish, for instance, I mean, they're all animals, but you know, we often, when we think about animals, we think about, you know, furry animals. what, what people don't realize is that the conditions they're grown in mean that they are much more susceptible to infections that won't necessarily make them obviously ill, but will stop them growing so quickly. So they're given antibiotics for growth promotion. But even in those countries that don't use antibiotics for growth promotion, they will use them if the animals are ill. And there's usually a set period of time when antibiotics must be withdrawn before the animal goes to slaughter and the the meat, for instance, enters the food chain. So people used to get very concerned about antibiotic or antimicrobial residues in food. But actually, the issue for human health, because that is very much addressed in certain European countries, is transfer of the drug-resistant microbe through the food chain. That's still an issue. It's a challenge when that means changing the animal production procedure. You know, you, if you're gonna have thousands of animals together, then they are going to be vulnerable to infection. We then come on to plants and transfer drug resistance that way. That's considered now to be pretty much an issue for things like azole-resistant candida, which is a fungus. And they use azoles in, to spray on certain plant products food products. And of course, these uh, fungi can then get into humans and then the drugs of choice may not work or may not be as effective. So it isn't just a bacterial phenomenon. This is a phenomenon in other microbes as well. And I think we're only just starting to appreciate antifungal resistance and the One Health um, aspect to it.
1: A lot of ant- antibiotics or antimicrobials that are used in, in other industries are also clinically important to humans. This brings up the issue of where we we need to use them, why, in which sectors, et cetera, et cetera.
0: Yes. Yeah, so here's an interesting point about use in, in other sectors. So. Uh, depending on the country again but in certain countries drugs that are used in human medicine cannot be used in animals or another sector and people uh, agree with that and they they go along with it but as far as a bacterium is concerned using a molecule that structurally is extremely similar to the one used in human medicine a bacterium can't tell the difference and it's the same mechanism of drug resistance so for instance Fluoroquinolones used in animals versus humans, or some cephalosporins used in animals versus humans. It's the same mechanism of drug resistance for that drug class. So one of the big issues that, that have been discussed for over 20 years is how do we resolve that? How do we start getting to a point where certain drug classes are only used in animals, and certain drug classes are only used in humans. Now, if we take colistin as an example, colistin is a toxic drug, and until relatively recently, it was very, very rarely used in human medicine, but widely used in animals. When we started having resistance problems that couldn't be tackled easily, particularly multi-drug resistant infections by bacteria, that What happened then? We started using colistin in human medicine and then saying, well, you can't use it in animals now. But that was without any real discussion and agreement between those communities. And there has to be this One Health discussion now on how to go forward.
1: Thank you for that. I guess we will end this episode on that note. Thank you very much for your time today, Professor Pritok. Thank you. Well, thank you for having me. And to end our podcast episode, let's remember to spread awareness in order to stop resistance, not only during World Antimicrobial Awareness Week, but at every instance of the can Because antimicrobial resistance is already here. It has already started impacting our lives. And by awareness, we can all collectively work in preventing any further spread. Thank you for listening. You've been listening to the podcast Microbes and Us. Hit the follow button to never miss an episode and follow us on social media on Twitter, Facebook, and Instagram at FEMSMicro and subscribe to our YouTube channel, FEMS Microbiology.